Hi, it's Ken White. And this is Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, I want to start this week in Georgia, where we've learned uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is, she has this ongoing investigation into the efforts to falsify Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. And we learned this week that she has sent target letters to all 16 of the people who held themselves out as Trump electors. Now, of course, Biden won Georgia. Uh, the, the actual slate of electors from Georgia went to vote for Biden in the Electoral College. But you had this group of 16 Republicans who sent a notice to the National Archives saying, we are the Georgia elector slate uh, and we are for Donald Trump. Uh, and now those people have received target letters in this investigation. So first of all, what is a target letter? Well, Josh, a target letter is just a letter from the prosecutor, usually in connection with a grand jury investigation, informing somebody that they are a target of the investigation. Now, remember from our, our many discussions in the uh, Robert Mueller era that uh, the government tends to divide people into three categories. A witness who, you know, is not suspected of any crime, a subject who might have committed a crime and whose conduct is within the scope of a grand jury investigation, and a target, meaning someone that they are seriously contemplating charging with a crime through the grand jury investigation. So a target letter just says, hey, by the way, we want you to come to talk to the grand jury, and you're a target. Now, the, the genesis of this is a sense that it's coercive and unfair to subpoena someone to the grand jury when you know you're planning on charging them to get them, to, to compel them to testify under oath and incriminate themselves. Uh, and that it's it's almost possibly, uh, uh, in some people's view, a Fifth Amendment violation. So the, the federal prosecutors started a practice, not necessarily required by law, of always sending a target letter before subpoenaing somebody in to testify the, before the grand jury. So it's, it's Department of Justice policy policy that before you haul someone before the grand jury, you tell them if they're a subject or a target so they can fairly decide whether or not to take the fifth and certainly whether or not to lawyer up. And many states follow the same practice. And so if you received a target letter, why would you ever speak to the grand jury? Can't you just take the fifth? You can. And uh, in my view, you almost always should unless you make the decision basically to cooperate because a target letter is a very reliable signal that what you're going to say is going to incriminate you. So this gets into the strategy of why people really send target letters. So nominally and traditionally, it's for the purposes of being fair and making sure everyone's rights are respected and no one gets bigfooted by the government. In reality, though, uh, it can often be an instance of, of cage rattling. So Remember, we've talked before about how the government loves two things. One thing is flipping people to testify against each other. And the other thing is scaring the hell out of people so they scramble around and do stupid things that incriminate them. Uh, and a target letter does both. Uh, a, a target letter tells people, hey, maybe I should come in and flip on these other people and cooperate against them. And it makes them panic and, uh, as clients so often do, do dumb things that give the government an e easier case. Do you think that would be what's happening here? Because I'm the, I'm a little confused about what the nature of this investigation would be such that it would be useful to have one or more of the electors flip against each other. I mean, I, I, I guess the, the idea is that the, the legal defense will be 
somewhat similar to legal defenses that Donald Trump might raise, where basically they would contend that, you know, they honestly believed that the election had been stolen in Georgia and that they were the valid elector slate or that they would be the valid elector slate after some future action by the state legislature. So I guess, you know, one thing could be if they had secret conversations where, you know, actually they agreed that that was not the purpose and that they were trying to steal the election. I find that a little bit unlikely that you're going to get useful testimony to that effect, and and, and also a little bit unlikely that that's going to be really the important legal theory here. That, you know, I, I would think that you could argue in this case that they, you know, regardless of what they thought happened with the the, the vote count in Georgia, these people were not the valid Georgia elector slate, and they were, uh, they, their statement was false when they told the National Archive, uh, the federal government, that they that they were the elector slate from Georgia. In fact, you know, like in, in every state in the country, the campaigns pre-register a slate of electors for who will be the elector if they win that state. And this is not the same list of people that were on the Trump list of electors for the event that Trump actually were to win. Georgia in 2020. So it seems to me like, you know, what the that showing the the actions that they that they took here, I, I don't understand why you would what, what you would augment there by rattling the cage and getting some of these people to flip on each other. It, se- it seems like it, it wouldn't be that sort of investigation to me. Am I wrong about that? I think you are, Josh. You seem to be imagining a world where people doing criminal things have message discipline and uh, limit their communications to things that do not incriminate them or completely eviscerate any future defense they might have. But that's not the world we live in. Uh, And it is routine, once you rattle the cage, for people to come out to make admissions, uh, maybe even come up with and and turn over incriminating communications like emails or texts, because uh, nothing about the post-election operation by Trump affiliates speaks of discipline. And uh, for me, it is completely credible that there's going to be testimony or documents out there where they more or less give up the game and admit they know this is just a tactic or or a pretense. Uh, Because you're right. I mean, what you just articulated uh, is more or less what some of these fake electors are saying in a motion they filed uh, asking a court basically to prevent this from happening, to quash the subpoenas and to disqualify the district attorney. They're saying there's nothing new here. There's no new evidence that would take these people from witnesses, which they were supposedly before, to targets. This is just the government bigfooting and trying to scare people and trying to get people to take the fifth on the record and then use that politically uh, and that it's all going to be leaked to the January 6th committee and and so on and so forth. So that's all the argument. But I mean, I think any prosecutor looking at a situation like this with a bunch of participants would be looking to get each and every one of them to talk about what was said, because what was said is so important for intent. Funny Willis has also said that she might call former President Trump to testify before the grand jury. And and so I guess one question then would be, I assume that she would have to send Donald Trump a target letter it, to the extent that he is actually a target of this investigation before she could call him to do that, right? Yeah, I, I honestly don't know if Georgia law or regulations require that, but that would be certainly consistent with what she's doing so far and consistent with best practices. And then Trump would presumably just take the fifth. Uh, you know, well, f- Trump would first throw everything he could at it to try to fight the subpoena and and avoid having to appear. But to the extent that Trump ended up actually appearing, I assume he would just take the fifth. Josh, that's what a sensible person would do. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, I don't know what he would do. Uh, I actually 
find it somewhat improbable that he would fail at his efforts to throw up uh, chaff and and uh, delay his appearance or, you know, go through other legal machinations that he's been so successful with before. But if it came down to the day where he actually has to testify, I honestly don't know what he'd do. Uh, he's so volatile and he's so confident in his own ability to talk his way out of things that I think it's perfectly possible that he'd go in there and just do what every defense attorney dreads, which is speak from the heart. What would the purpose of calling him before the grand jury be? I mean, I guess, you know, if you, if you really thought that you could get him to be in there and be in discipline, then that might be useful. I mean, he has, you know, in almost all of these instances, avoided having to, to testify in these various proceedings. So I don't. I think, you know, while Trump is confident in his ability to talk, he has not previously shown a willingness to appear other than under extreme duress and talk in these contexts in, in a way that he does not have to. I mean, there, there, there was that, I mean, he, he was deposed in that Tim O'Brien uh, defamation litigation, for example, where he was the, the plaintiff. But right. um, I, I so I but I guess, you know, do, do you always call the target of investigation before the grand jury? I assume that. No. Yeah. And so when when would you not want to call them? Well, if you don't want to tip your hand as to what you know and what the investigation is about, when you don't have any basis to think that they are dumb or indisciplined enough to do it and it's just a, a worthless exercise, those are situations where you wouldn't. Um, so in this situation, I think the reasons you'd want to call him as the prosecutor are number one for political leverage. Um, number two, uh, in, in case he, uh, comes in and incriminates himself, uh, through indiscipline and, and volatility and three to lock him in. So one of the big purposes of the grand jury practice is to lock people into a story, right? To get them under oath saying this is what happened. And so one of the virtues of doing that to a target is that then they can't come up with some other defense later that contradicts what they said under oath. And then Lindsey Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, um, who uh, had two phone calls with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger during this process, wherein Donald Trump was uh, trying bitterly to contest what had been the results from Georgia. Uh, he's been subpoenaed to testify before this grand jury. He'd been, he's been trying to fight that subpoena. His attorneys say he is neither a subject nor target of the investigation, simply a witness. So that certainly looks like a representation from them that he has not received a letter uh, to the effect that he's a subject or a target. He's now in federal court trying to fight this subpoena. Is there any likelihood that he's going to avoid testifying before this grand jury? Not a strong likelihood. He started out in federal court in his home state, of course, and now he's made an agreement with the DA that he'll transfer this fight to federal court in Georgia, where it should be, given that it's a subpoena out of Georgia. So far, he has not articulated what sound like legally valid defenses to responding to a subpoena. Uh, he's talked about how well it was his, you know, it was his right to have these calls as the head of the Judiciary Committee and, and and things like that. But none of that goes to whether or not a grand jury can call you to give evidence. So yeah, you can have to testify about things that you had a perfect legal right to do. Absolutely. Unless his lawyers have some sort of valid legal theory as opposed to public relations strategy, then no, I don't think he's going to get out of uh, doing it. I think he's probably just delaying. And he's going to have to talk because he, you know, I mean, his whole representation is, you know, I'm not a subject of this investigation. I don't I don't see any particular theory on which Graham has committed any crime. I don't I'm, I'm not aware of any reason to think that he had. But so that presumably means that he's I mean, could he assert the fifth year? It would be it would be politically very 
unpleasant for him to do that. It would be. And I, as his lawyer, would certainly be looking at him taking the fifth because, I mean, he was basically doing something in parallel to what Trump was doing. So to the extent that Trump was committing a crime by trying to persuade or coerce Georgia authorities to do something fraudulent with a vote count, uh, and to the extent uh, Lindsey Graham is calling at the same time, asking about the same things, then as his lawyer, I would be very concerned that they're trying to show he's acting in concert, uh, maybe part of a conspiracy to do this, that he's backing up Trump's illegal actions, anything like that. Uh, but I, I mean, if they've been told by the Georgia authorities that he's only a witness or subject, that likely indicates they've simply decided kind of categorically, we're not going to pursue him. When you, when you mention him asserting that he has a legal right in his capacity uh, uh, as the then chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, now he's the ranking member on the committee, could that be an indication that you'd be looking at the speech or debate clause to assert that, you know, the—I I mean, I, I wouldn't give him a right not to testify, right? But it, conceivably, in a world where—and it depends on precisely what he asked Secretary of State Raffensperger to do, whether he, you know, the just because Donald Trump made some potentially illegal asks of him doesn't mean that Lindsey Graham asked for precisely the same things. Could he assert that, that he couldn't be prosecuted for whatever he did there because he was acting in his official capacity as a United States senator and he's protected by the speech or debate clause? Well, you could say that, but it's a pretty weak argument given the nature of the call. Uh, you know, this is not speech or debate. It's not something done on the floor of the Senate. It's not part of the legislative process. I think it would be a attenuated and weak application of the clause, but he may just be setting up defenses for the future and really... I mean, there are legal defenses and there are PR defenses, and this may be just coming up with and consistently articulating a PR defense that he's going to use whatever happens next. One thing you can say about the guy is that he's substantially more disciplined than Donald Trump and clearly substantially better at listening to legal advice and PR advice about message discipline. I want to talk about a, a memo from Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, that a lot of people were quite upset about. This is a memo that uh, that he released in May uh, to DOJ uh, officials reminding them of DOJ procedures on investigations that can be politically sensitive. Uh, and basically, the memo uh, uh, reiterates prior language about caution, about charges and public statements. It incorporates a memo from then Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, which came out in February of 2020, telling agencies to consult with the with main justice before opening politically charged investigations and to to get prior written approval from the attorney general before opening an investigation of declared candidate for president or vice president of the United States. And so a lot of the coverage of this was basically about that this is Merrick Garland like saying that they're not going to prosecute Trump and you know otherwise giving some sort of carte blanche to elected officials or politically prominent people, uh, basically making it very difficult to bring any sort of criminal investigation against them. Uh, and then you saw other people basically saying, this memo just basically says what the Department of Justice has always done, and it does this for certain good reasons. You don't want investigations that appear to be or actually are conducted for political purposes, and that these are just, you know, sensible guardrails uh, that uh, ensure these things are conducted in a proper manner, not that they aren't conducted at all. What did, what did you make of this memo? Is this memo, is it appropriate? Is it important? Does does it tell us anything about what might happen with the investigations related to the former president? 
So with all the reactions to this, Josh, going every place from this is a crisis uh, to the Republic to this is a nothing burger, I think it's very substantially closer to nothing burger, uh, if not all the way there. So most of the memo is just restating long-term DOJ policy from attorneys general under Democratic and Republican presidents, and frankly, just good policy about making sure that grownups are always in the room and and that local people don't go off and create political crises. You know, the one part that's a little eyebrow raising is, you know, Barr came up with this explicit instruction that before investigating a presidential or vice presidential candidate, you need to get written permission. Now, practically speaking, I can tell you that the FBI and people within the DOJ would have always done that. Anyway, uh, this is a very ass-covering culture, and uh, the notion that they would have launched a major investigation like that without consultation all the way up the line and getting, you know, uh, job cover and political cover and all that sort of thing, uh, that's generally not done. Uh, That would be reckless. So it really just restates what amounts to the general practice. And I think it's a good idea. I think that it, you know, such investigations can be incredibly disruptive just by being announced, just by being leaked or mentioned. It can have a dramatic impact on elections. Many people thought that the things said and released about Hillary Clinton had a dramatic impact on the 2016 election, and, and they no doubt did. So I think it's a good idea that to make sure that any such investigation is known and approved at the highest levels. And I mean, to the extent it's rejected, then you can always bring that to Congress and go through one of the whistleblower provisions or the Office of Inspector General provisions. I think the only unfortunate part here is sort of the historical resonance that it's readopting a, a Bill Barr memo because of, you know, all the indications that Barr kind of downplayed, perhaps dishonestly, the the Mueller report in describing it to Congress and generally was somewhat obstructive of efforts to uh, investigate or hold Donald Trump accountable. That kind of gives it an unfortunate historical resonance as if it's reinvoking that spirit. But I really don't think it is. And I, I certainly don't think you can infer anything from it about what Garland is doing about Trump, because if the fix were in, uh, he wouldn't make the fix in by reissuing uh, a memo about something that everyone knows about already. I would think that a reason you might, under Bill Barr specifically, have this establishment of an explicit requirement to get written permission before opening such an investigation is that Trump officials were, I think, often not unreasonably concerned that people in the lower ranks, whether they were career bureaucrats or, or lower level political appointees, were not always on board with the official policy of the administration and might be more insubordinate than you would typically see in another administration. And, you know, people people often celebrated this, uh, especially in the early parts of the Trump administration, basically the lack of control that the political appointees at the top or that the president himself had over the executive branch over which, you know, he's granted by the Constitution tremendous discretionary authority to decide how it should operate. And so if an attorney general were going to be paranoid about the idea that someone would open an investigation without his permission against his wishes, I would think it would be an attorney general in the Trump administration. I don't think that would be a crazy thing 
for that person to be concerned about and to say basically, well, you know, this is our existing longstanding customary procedure, but let's let's put the official requirement in writing just in case. I think that's right. I, I understand why you know, people di- di- didn't like Donald Trump having the, you know, the full political control over the agencies that he has granted such control over in the Constitution. And then you also saw efforts by the White House to interfere in the operations of the Department of Justice in ways that I think broadly were permitted by the Constitution, but went against longstanding political customs and practice in a way that, that bothered people a lot. Um, but I sort of, you know, I get why that memo, why you'd have that in that context. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with putting that requirement in writing. I don't think so either. I, I think it's all sort of catastrophizing about how Trump's going to get away with everything and they're never going to do anything. And as we've discussed many times before, maybe Garland won't have the political will to sign off on some sort of charges against Donald Trump. But he wouldn't be signaling that through reauthorizing a memo that just restates long-term practice. Let's talk about Indiana. There's been this news story uh, with the with the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. A number of states have implemented anti-abortion laws that were previously blocked uh, by the, the Roe and Casey decisions. And one of those is Ohio, uh, where abortion is generally prohibited after the sixth week of pregnancy. And so we had this news story a few weeks ago in the in- Indianapolis Star saying that there was a, a doctor uh, in Indianapolis um, who had received a 10-year-old patient uh, requiring an abortion who had been brought to Indiana because the, the patient could not attain the abortion in Ohio. And there were days of news stories with people wondering, among other things, is this really true? The, you know, the, we didn't have a, a name of the patient, and there are obvious reasons why you wouldn't have the name of the patient. Um, you had this one uh, a news article with a, a statement from a doctor who wasn't talking more about it. And again, there are good reasons you wouldn't talk more about it. There are significant privacy concerns here. And so then uh, you had a number of these news cycles, and then we learned uh, about a week ago that uh, a man had been indicted in Ohio for the rape of this child. Um, and so people were wondering, did this really happen? And now it's become clear, yes, indeed, it, it, it did happen, and the child did go to, to Indiana for the abortion. And the Republican attorney general of Indiana uh, has been very sharply critical of this uh, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who performed the abortion and who spoke to the uh, Indianapolis Star about doing so, called her an abortion activist acting as a doctor with a history of failing to report. He said on, on television, that we're going to fight this to the end, including looking at her licensure, uh, saying, you know, if she failed to report it in Indiana, that's a crime to intentionally not report and then uh, later, uh, when it became clear that, you know, the, the, the reports were true, Todd Rakita makes further statements uh, saying that uh, we're waiting for relevant documents to prove that the abortion and or the abuse were reported, as Dr. Bernard had requirements to do under Indiana law. The failure to do so constitutes a crime in Indiana and could also affect her licensure. And so uh, Dr. Bernard uh, and the hospital where she works have produced various documents uh, indicating that she complied with the reporting requirements about the obviously apparent abuse that occurred here. The hospital also issued a statement saying that she complied with HIPAA privacy uh, requirements in, in, in all respects. And then we have a notice from her attorneys to the state of Indiana basically reserving a right to sue for defamation here, particularly over the claim uh, that she has a history of failing to report. And they say that, you know, her license is is clean with with no prior violations, and also that she had filed the report in this specific instance. And so I, I, I guess the first question here is, is it likely that Dr. Bernard has a claim here? We've talked previously about the difficulty of suing federal officials 
for defamation, that you cannot sue the federal government for defamation by law. And if you're trying to sue a federal official in their personal capacity, you have to show that they weren't acting in an official capacity. This was, you know, a theme in certain litigation related to Donald Trump. So what's the situation in, in Indiana? Uh, if, the, if, if you believe that the attorney general of Indiana has uh, made statements about you that are defamatory, what is your legal recourse? Who, if anyone, can you sue? So, Josh, this brings us back to something we've talked about a number of times in the context of people suing Trump for talking about them. Remember that the federal government and the states start out with something called sovereign immunity. Uh, you can't sue the king unless the king decides that you can sue the king is the concept. And Indiana enjoys that doctrine just like anyone else. And like most states, they have waived their sovereign immunity to some extent, allowing some types of lawsuits against them for the actions of their agencies or their employees. And that's governed by the Indiana Tort Claim Act. Here, remember when we were dealing with Trump, one of the problems was the Federal Tort Claim Act does not permit defamation claims. So if you're in the federal context, a federal employee, and they're covered by the act, they were acting in the scope of their employment, and they commit defamation, you're out of luck because the, the federal government hasn't waived its sovereign immunity for that type of claim. Indiana has to a certain extent. So the Indiana Tort Claims Act says uh, that you can sue people for a wide variety of things. However, you cannot sue for misrepresentation if unintentional. So that would suggest that it would be difficult for Dr. Bernard to sue on the theory that uh, the attorney general of Indiana was negligent in, or, or even possibly reckless in going out there and saying false things about her. She would have to prove that he intentionally lied or something close to the malice actual malice standard, meaning that he was uh, he recklessly disregarded the truth in saying the things he did. Must a statement be misrepresentative to be defamatory or is that a subset of false statements? So it's pretty clear from a little case law that I looked at that this is understood to limit defamation claims. Okay. So you're not going to be able to sue someone for negligently making false statements about you. Uh, that's what the case law from Indiana suggests. So she would have to prove that he was deliberately lying or at least you know, recklessly looking away from evidence he was lying. Now, I think from the context, it's completely clear he was just making stuff up. There's apparently no basis whatsoever for this claim that she had a history of non-reporting. I doubt you're ever going to get any evidence that he looked at supporting that. And, uh, you know, it may even be that he knew at the time that she had reported and he was just using this to make political waves, which which grotesquely seems to be what a lot of people were doing with, uh, you know, the case of this child who was raped when she was nine years old. The other thing that she may be able to argue maybe is that he was acting outside the scope of his function as the attorney general of Indiana. Um, I think it's somewhat difficult argument because part of the role of the attorney general is to make public statements about law enforcement in Indiana. But I mean, he was on on Fox News on a program with Jesse Waters, who's, you know, primarily known for wandering around Chinatown making ethnic jokes. And you could make an argument that that's just completely outside the scope of his role as attorney general. But that's not a good argument, right? Like, I mean, going in the media to talk about law enforcement matters of public concern in the state of Indiana sounds like a very core job function of the attorney general to me. I mean, and the fact that you were doing it badly, 
uh, or that you are doing it, you know, for for bad purposes, that doesn't affect the legal analysis, right? Nor does it, I mean, nor does it affect the legal analysis that it's Jesse Waters rather than Brett Baer or somebody more credible on Fox News. Like, you know, I I have a lot of opinions about Jesse. Well, I don't have that many opinions about Jesse Waters, but I have <laughs> I have opinions about Jesse Waters. But it's like the, the legal standard can't be if you're on a shitty, stupid news program, then you're outside your official capacity. But if you're on a, you know, relatively more serious news program, then you're within your legal capacity. I mean, he, he would still be within his legal capacity if he was on the Colbert Report, right? Yeah. I mean, I, too, have only as many uh, opinions about Jesse Waters as are required, which is few. <laughs> and I guess you could say, yeah, even if he's talking about state law enforcement to graduation of clown college, uh, that it's still covered. <laughs> That's why I said, Josh, it's not a very good argument. You're just kind of bouncing the rubble now. Uh, so, But I would still make it in order to try to make the case survive, because I think what the attorney general did here basically making up false allegations of a crime and a license violation uh, of a citizen of the state is absolutely outrageous. What about things that are basically insinuations? Because, I mean, th there's a few separate parts of the statements here that they raise in this notice. Now, the first one is him saying that she is an abortion activist acting as a doctor. Now, that, that sounds like a statement of opinion to me, right? Correct. Yeah. And so then there's this claim about the history of failing to report. That's the thing that sounds most strongly to me like a factual claim that appears to be false. That's right. That's where I'd want to hang my hat here. Then he has a follow-up statement once we learn that this abortion did in fact happen. And he doesn't repeat the claim that she has a history of failing to report. He instead says, we're investigating the situation, are waiting for the relevant documents to prove if the abortion and or the abuse were reported as Dr. Caitlin Bernard had requirements to do both under Indiana law. The failure to do so constitutes a crime in Indiana and her behavior could also affect her licensure. So this was several days later after the attorney general had had some time to do further investigation about whether, you know, the, the, these are documents that were filed with, you know, with the government of the state of Indiana. He should be able to, you know, to seek and, and access these documents if he's going to comment on their, their contents. And he's not saying that she didn't report. He's doing this insinuating stuff. Well, if she didn't report, we're going we're gonna to look into it. And if she didn't do it, that would be a crime under Indiana law. He's not directly saying that she broke the law, but could that be defamatory because it insinuates that she broke the law? It could be, potentially. I mean, you would have to demonstrate that a reasonable person familiar with the context would interpret it as an assertion of fact. And if he knew at the time, which he certainly should have by then, that she absolutely did not violate the law, then yes, I think it's potentially defamatory. So if the uh, mascot for Hellman's mayonnaise gets killed in New Orleans, and you say, I think we need to look at Ken White for this, even though you knew I was in Alaska, <laughs> then uh, this is potentially defamatory because you're, you're implying something, maybe the case that you absolutely know is not the case. And the fact that you've couched it a little bit with maybe probably doesn't protect you. That's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, tell us what you think of this episode and send us any questions that you have about what we've discussed here or any other serious trouble that interests you. You can reach us by email at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. And you can join the conversation about this episode and more at serioustrouble.show. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way very soon. <laughs>